Let us continue our Friday night question and answer sessions. We're getting close to the end of the questions, but we're not there yet. The next question reads, is there anywhere in the Old Testament that witnesses the principle Yeshua asserts in John 9, 1 to 3, where someone is subjected to suffering in order for, quote, the works of God, end quote, to be, quote, revealed, unquote, in him or her, i.e. the person suffering. If you remember in John 9, they ask, who sinned that caused this man to be born blind? And it was no one who sinned, but that the power of the Lord could be shown to the world. So is there such a place where someone suffers so that God's great kindness and mercy and works can be revealed? First one that jumps to mind is Job. Let's turn to Job chapter 1 and read verses 1 to 21. And we will see that Job suffers more than just about anyone I can think of in the world. Because who sinned? No one. It's not because of sin. It's so that the glory of God can be revealed. So Job chapter 1, verse 1, says, There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. What's that mean, blameless and upright? He's righteous, right in the eyes of God. He's upright. He's tamim, as the Hebrew would say. And one who feared God and shunned evil. So verse 1 begins that way to let us know that Job is not some degenerate that's about to be punished by God. No, he's a righteous man. Verse 2, and seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. I mean, he's not going to wait till they sin. He's going to do these sacrifices every day just to make sure they're covered. Now there was a day when the sons of God, that refers to the angelic host, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came amongst them. So where are these angelic hosts located? They're before the throne of God in heaven. So people ask me, Wayne, didn't Satan fall back in Genesis chapter 1, get kicked out of heaven, he's never been allowed back? The answer is no. Revelation 12 is where Satan gets kicked out of heaven, and that hasn't happened yet. So what's Satan doing at the moment? Accusing us to God. That's what he's doing, yeah. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth. And from walking back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? 
Why do you think Messiah teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer to protect us from the evil one? Can God put a hedge of protection around us such that Satan cannot harm us? Yes. So he says, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So everything Job has is at Satan's disposal, but not the body of Job. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The donkeys were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his clothes, his robe, and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and what? Worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So did Job suffer because he was a sinner? No. Why did he suffer? To demonstrate the works of God, that God could have confidence in Job because of Job's faith and love of him. Another example, the widow's son in 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17. First Kings chapter 17. You notice it's right before chapter 18 when Elijah has the contest with the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. So we're getting real close to that time. But chapter 17, starting in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Who's him? Elijah saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. Where is Sidon today? Lebanon. Lebanon. Which is outside the jurisdiction of Ahab and Jezebel, right? It's just north of what would be the northern kingdom. 
So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. Do you see what Elijah is asking this woman to do? She's about to make a final meal for her and her son. Elijah says, well, make one for me first. Then make one for you and your son. Do you think there's enough flour and oil to make it for all three? Not in the natural, I know. Not in the natural, but let's keep reading. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Remember a minute ago she called him what? Your God. Now he says, the Lord, the God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So what is he asking her to do? Show faith. To show faith. To believe in a God that is not her God in the past, but will be shortly. I'm sorry, I don't want to give away the end of the story. If he showed up now, would we believe him? That's a good question. Have you seen the movie, The Cup of Elijah? No. Oh, it's a wonderful movie. It was made by a Messianic congregation in Cincinnati, Ohio. A non-believing Jewish family sits down for their Passover Seder. They send the kid to the door, and Elijah's there. <laughs> and they think it's just some crazy guy in pajamas. <laughs> I should bring it in. Let everybody watch it called the cup of Elijah. Yep. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. Why does she do that? Why would she listen to this prophet? She's beginning to show a little faith. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry. You know, people tell me, God can't do something like that. The God who spoke heaven and earth into existence can't multiply the oil and the flour. Oh, yes, he can. That's right. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah, now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. The son becomes sick. Is it because she disobeyed? No. Is it because the sin of her, the son? No. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And his answer is, Yeah, you're a great sinner, right? No, not at all. So he said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. 
Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out in the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. So the Lord uses this to bring the lady to true faith wasn't because she sinned. It wasn't because her son sinned. It was to show the works of God and reveal them. Next question. Oh, you guys are going to get a Hebrew lesson tonight, whether you need one or not. Okay. The question reads, despite many discussions about circumcision, I find the whole circumcision thing is still confusing. That is, whether it's a command or not. Then the person quotes from Genesis 17.10. God bless you. This is my comment. Let me give you a chance to find it. Genesis 17.10. Let me turn to it too. Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. Are we there? I am. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. And then the emphasis is Hebrew word 8104, shamar, which means to guard, to keep, to protect, etc. And you shall circumcise. Shamar, Hebrew 8104. Isn't shamar one of those words? Not leaving anything to choice, but saying just do it. Hey, that would make a good sneaker commercial. I know God is speaking to the physical descendants of Abraham, and we are descendants by faith. So why doesn't that put us under the same obligation on the one hand, if we're going to claim the benefits on the other? Which is a good question. Do I teach that the commandments apply to us or not? Yes, yes they do. And then Leviticus 12, verses 2 to 4. Turn over there. The questioner cites that as well. Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 to 4, which is about a woman having given birth. Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 to 4. I'm going to include verse 1, even though the questioner did not. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, So whose words are these? These are the Lord's. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman is conceived and bore a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification thirty-one days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purification are fulfilled. 
So the questioner cites Leviticus 12, 2 to 4. says, so this is one of the commandments for the mixed multitude, including us. So if a woman is commanded to go through purification after giving birth to a male child before she can return to normal life, and if having a male child circumcised is part of this process, then doesn't that also make circumcision a command? So she cites, or the person cites, to Genesis 17.10 and to Leviticus 12.2-4. So let us take a brief moment and discuss first, theoretically, how can you tell whether a word in biblical Hebrew is a commandment or not? There is a different form of the verb if it is a commandment. In fact, there's three different forms that are not normal, non-commandment forms. There's a positive commandment, thou shalt do it. For eat, if God said, thou shalt eat, talking to us, he would say, chalu, chalu, thou shalt eat. If it's a negative commandment, there are two negative commandments. One's temporary, one's permanent. If he says, thou shalt not eat, temporarily because of the circumstances we're in, it would be all tochlu. All from the same verb, right? Chalu, all tochlu. And if it's thou shalt not ever eat like it is in Leviticus chapter 11, that's lo tochlu. So you can tell immediately looking at the biblical Hebrew, is that a commandment of God or isn't it? So let's look at Genesis chapter 17 verse 10 in the Hebrew. Verse 10 begins, Zot, which means this is. Briti, my covenant. Asher, which. Tishmaru, you shall keep. Notice the English uses shall, which makes us think of a commandment. But if that's a positive commandment, it's not going to be Tishmaru, it's going to be Shimru. It drops that first T sound to make it a positive commandment. So, Tishmaru is not a commandment. It's simply the imperfect. In Hebrew, there's only two tenses. There's perfect tense for completed action and imperfect for action that is not complete. So, they should properly have translated this as you will keep, you may keep, you might keep, you should keep. All those are valid translations. And when they say you shall keep, they're making us think it says something that it does not. Okay? Keep going. Beini, between me, uvenechem, and y'all. Yeah, God uses y'all. Uvein, and between, zaracha, your descendants, acharecha, after you. Himol which is translated in our Bibles, shall be circumcised. Again, you see that shall, which makes you think it's a commandment. That verb is an infinitive. It's not a command form at all. Himol. It's an infinitive absolute, which is defined as an extremely flexible, non-finite verbal form. Again, they should not have translated it shall. Lachem, amongst you, Calls the char every male child. So in Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, those are not command forms. 
Well, what about Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 to 3? It says, Vidaber. And he spoke. Who spoke? Adonai. So, and the Lord spoke. L2, Moshe, Moses, lay more, saying, There is no command in verse 1. Verse 2 says, Daber, that's a command. But the command is speak, not circumcise, but speak. Speak to the children of Israel. So it's Daber el Bene Israel. Lamor saying, that means what follows is a quote. Isha, a woman, ki that. Tazria has conceived. Vayalda and has given birth to Zachar, a male child. Vamat'ah shall be unclean. Not a command form, just a statement. It's a perfect tense verb with a reversing bob which makes it imperfect. She will be unclean. No shall. Shivat Yamim, seven days. Bimei in the days, Nidat, of her customary impurity, you know that part, she shall be unclean. There are no command forms in that verse either. Verse 3, and on the eighth day shall be circumcised. Oh, there's that other shall, but the verb is yimol. Yimol is a nifal imperfect. Nifal is passive. Imperfect means it just hasn't been done yet. It's not a commandment. They should have translated as will be circumcised, may be circumcised, should, could, might, any of those. But when they put shall, they make you think it's a command form, and it's not. And I can see that y'all are looking at me like, boy, that was boring. But the point is, when you get in and look at the Hebrew, the English makes you think it must be a commandment, but it's not. Now let's go to Acts chapter 15, verse 1. You remember there was a Shabbat quite a while back now when I said we need to take a look at every verb about circumcision and see if we can find a command form. And that's, I believe, when we were studying Acts chapter 15. So look at Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. How should that have read if there's a commandment to physically circumcise the child? Should have said, unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. What's there between the law and the custom? The law is commanded by God. Custom is commanded by the rabbis, by men. And that's when we said, but it sure sounds like they're commandments. So we went, we looked at every verb having to do with circumcision. There is one that is a commandment. And that is to circumcise your heart. 
It's not physical circumcision. It's circumcise your heart. Let's go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 22. Whose, whose words are these? The Yeshua's words. How do you know? Red. They're red. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, open parent, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. Meaning what? Moses didn't command it. Who commanded it? The father, men, the rabbis. Yeah, it didn't come from God that every Gentile needs to be circumcised in the flesh. So let's keep reading. Acts chapter 7, verse 8. Here is what circumcision is. Acts chapter 7, verse 8. Then he, that is God, gave him, that is Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. It's not a commandment. It's a sign of a covenant. If we were to look back at Genesis, the Hebrew doesn't say a sign of the covenant. Well, it doesn't say the sign of the covenant. It says a sign of a covenant. Because there are two signs of this covenant. One is physical circumcision. One is circumcision of the heart. Circumcision in the flesh is the type. Circumcision of the heart is the fulfillment. That which circumcision of the flesh points to. Circumcision of the flesh is a promise. I will follow your commandments. Circumcision of the heart is loving God and keeping his commandments. Let's keep going. Romans chapter 2. Did you not cover John 7? Oh, I did. Verse 8. No, John 7, verse 22 and Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, you said it was from the fathers. From the fathers, not from Moses. But it says so that the law of Moses should not be broken. Yeah, but go back to the parenthetical. I, I saw that. So what he's saying is the <laughs> rabbis say it's part of the law because we say it is. So that's what we call the oral Torah. So he's saying, they're saying it's part of the law, but when we don't keep that, you don't condemn anybody for that. And that's right, we shouldn't condemn people for not following the rabbinic decrees. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 26. We may as well back up to 25. In fact, let's just back up to verse 17. 17? Yeah, to really just lead into it. Indeed. 
Paul says. You are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, referring to the Gentiles, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babies, having the form of knowledge and truth in the Torah. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable. What's that next word? Yeah. If you keep the Torah. But if you are a breaker of the Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, your promise was empty. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, what is that? He's circumcised of the heart. Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? What's he trying to say? Physical circumcision is a promise to keep the commandments. If you promise to keep the commandments and don't, it's as if you were never circumcised in the first place. And if you are never physically circumcised, but you do keep God's commandments in God's eyes, you're circumcised because that's circumcision of the heart. Which one means more to God? Circumcision in the flesh or circumcision of the heart? The heart. Isn't that just a New Testament concept? By no, by no means. But first, let's go to Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he, that's Abraham, received the sign of circumcision. What? Not the commandment, but the sign of circumcision. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So is physical circumcision sufficient? No. That's right. But what did the Jewish people of the day teach in Messiah's day? That you're saved by being circumcised. And the scriptures say, no, no, no. Circumcision was a sign of the righteousness of Abraham, which he had by his faith. So that's circumcision of the heart. But you can't see circumcision of the heart. How many of you would like it if somebody walking down the street would cut your chest open to see what your heart looks like? No, no, that would be bad. So he gave him a sign that could be seen to teach about a sign that's only visible to those who can see the heart. 
are to him, as you said. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 19. Is it wrong to circumcise your children? The answer is no. Is it wrong to circumcise your children to save them? Yes. yes. That's what Paul's trying to get across in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Sorry, chapter 7. Verses 17 to 19. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised, let him not be circumcised. That is, not as a way to try and earn salvation. Verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Talking about physical circumcision. But keeping the commandments of God, that's circumcision of the heart. Paul says that is what matters. Not whether your body has been physically circumcised, but has your heart been circumcised? Have you come to God by faith? Have you loved him enough that you're willing to say, God... Even if it's not what I would like to do, I'm going to follow your commandments and walk your way. Let's go to Galatians chapter 6 where Paul says the same thing. Remember in Galatians, people had come up from Jerusalem and told the Galatians that you've got to be circumcised to be saved. Is that a true doctrine? That's a wrong doctrine. But that's what they were teaching because that's what they honestly believed. Is that if you're circumcised, you can't go to hell. And if you're not circumcised, you can't go to heaven. Galatians chapter 6 verse 15. For in Messiah Yeshua, that is for those that are saved by faith, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, that is physical circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't neither one avails anything but a new creation. So stop looking at the external and start looking at the heart. Because according to Paul, circumcision that counts is the circumcision of the heart. Let's go also to Colossians. Yeah. And Jesus said, no more in the flesh, unless we're walking over here by the Spirit now, and not the flesh. Yeah. And it's hard to grasp one from the other if you don't have the Holy Spirit teaching it to you. You're absolutely right. Messiah would speak something, and the hearers would go, they're thinking about it in the physical world, and he's talking about the spiritual world. They get all confused. But Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. Colossians or Galatians? Colossians. We were in Galatians a minute ago. We're in Galatians 6.15. Now we're in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That's talking about which circumcision? 
Circumcision of the heart, spiritual circumcision. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Messiah. Buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So when you get saved, in God's eyes, you are circumcised of the heart. That's the circumcision that God's looking for. If you stand there on judgment day and say, but Lord, I'm circumcised in the flesh, you've got to take me. You may be sorely disappointed. No red circles. Ready for the next question? These are all good questions. When our Bibles say shall, 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 what does that make you think? Commandment. Commandment. In government contracts, there's a word will and a word shall. And you have to be very careful because they mean two very different things. And in translating the Bible, why do you think they use so many shalls in the Old Testament? Control. Are they trying to say that the Old Testament is so hard to do? It's such a burden. Well, so the next question. I read the following verses being quoted by John MacArthur as showing that distinct groups of people are excluded from participating in the community of Israel. These verses seem to be pretty emphatic. And the Lord said unto Moses, this is Exodus 12, so let's turn to Exodus 12. I didn't finish it yet. As soon as I got to the reference to Exodus 12, I thought we should turn there and see, because that will help explain the question. Exodus 12 takes place in Egypt at the very first Passover. Did God say that the things they did at the very first Passover are the way things have to be done forever and ever? He did not. How many of you every Passover take blood and put it upon the doorpost and lintel of your house? No, that was something that had to be done then, there. It's not an eternal I said in commandments, there, there's one form of positive commandment. For eat is chalu, when you're talking to a multiple of people. There's two negative, a temporary and a permanent. But there's only one positive commandment. So that's why if a positive commandment is forever, we found all those. This is a statute forever. This is a commandment forever. This is a perpetual covenant. God uses words like that to say, I mean this one to be forever. Let's look at Exodus 12, verse 43. Exodus 12, verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. They didn't translate that sentence so well. Where It's actually the son of a stranger. But at any rate... See, it says, no foreigner shall eat it. Does that look like a command, a negative command? It's not. The Hebrew is lo, write that down, lo, yochal. Lo, yochal. Every negative commandment must begin with what letter? 
a tav, which makes a T sound. A yod in an imperfect, meaning a future tense verb, means he. In biblical terms, you can only give a commandment to a you. It can be you masculine singular, you feminine singular, you masculine plural, you feminine plural. You can't command I, he, she, we, or they. You can only command a you. And this is lo yochal. So it is not a commandment. There is no reference to it being a permanent commandment or a commandment of any kind. And then Deuteronomy 23 is necessary for understanding the rest of the question. Deuteronomy 23 that we might get to tomorrow. Verses 1, 2, 3, and 7 and 8. Those verses discuss people who may not enter the assembly of the Lord. So that forms the basis of the question. It says, I read the following verses being quoted by John MacArthur showing that distinct groups of people are excluded from participating in the community of Israel. These verses seem to be pretty emphatic. Exodus 12, 43. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This, the ordinance of the Passover, there shall be no son of a stranger, eat thereof. The stranger is Nakar. That's what it says here. Actually, it's not, but okay. And Deuteronomy 23, 1, 2, 3, 7, and 8 basically excludes people who are in a situation completely out of their own making. Even if they want to love and serve the Lord, God says they're to be excluded from the congregation. But in Isaiah, still going on the question, in Isaiah we see, Isaiah 56, 4. Let's turn over there. Isaiah 56, 4. Isaiah 56, 4. Are we there? 56, verse 4. Isaiah 56, verse 4. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name. Better than that of sons and daughters, I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then in verse 6, also the sons of the foreigner. Here the word foreigner is Nikar, that's correct. Who join themselves to the Lord to serve him. And to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defining the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I'll bring to my holy mountain. What's that, holy mountain? It's the Messianic kingdom. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Here's the final question. So does this mean that there are, quote, degrees, end quote, of participation in the community of Israel 
and that people refer to in Exodus 12:43 and Deuteronomy 23:1-8 can participate only to a certain point, and from there they can't go any farther. If this is the case, what is that point of limitation? So it really is a good question. In Exodus 12, verses 43 to 49, it says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house nor shall you break one of its bones. Why was it important that the bone not be broken? Prophetic. What's that? Prophetic. Prophetic, and you said? It's a picture. It's a picture, same thing, because Messiah's bones were not to be broken, right. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger dwells among us. Absolutely correct. Now let's look at those verses in Hebrew. Actually, doesn't that passage make that couple of others make it a positive commandment to be circumcised? No. Because... You're commanded to keep the Passover if you're male. But here you can't keep it unless you're circumcised. Doesn't that equate to you must be circumcised? So Hang on to that for a moment. Okay. <laughs> That's coming. But ah, ah, let me not jump ahead. Okay. Again, in verse 43 of Exodus 12, the verbs are low which begins to sound like a negative commandment. But then, yochal. Can a commandment start with a yod? No. So it's not a commandment. And then, in verse 45, it's lo, yochal again. So not a commandment. But... But it's because of the next part. Remember in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians, where it talks about eating the Passover meal, it says, examine yourself first. No uncircumcised person shall eat it. It doesn't say no physically uncircumcised person, does it? It says no uncircumcised. Where does circumcision in the heart begin? Is that just a New Testament concept? How about Deuteronomy? Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Yeah, it's an Old Testament concept. The Old Testament lets us know that physical circumcision is the type, the fulfillment of which is the circumcision of the heart. So Deuteronomy chapter 10 Verse 16. Remember, Moses is pounding the podium. He's about to send him across the Jordan River into the promised land because he can't go. 
And he says, therefore, what's therefore mean? Because of what's just been said, right? Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. We'll start in verse 1 to give his context for verse 6. Because what happens if you take a verse out of his context? You create a pretext. I don't know what that means, but I've heard it all my life. Verse 1 says, Now, which you've changed to what? And it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations which the Lord your God drives you, and you return. What's that mean? Repent. Repent. Come back to God. Return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Shema B'kola. According to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your what? With all your heart and with all your soul. That the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations which the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, that's here in Georgia, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will what? Circumcise your hearts and the heart of your descendants. To love the Lord your God, your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you and who persecuted you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command you today. If you are saved by faith, you are circumcised of the heart. Do you need to be physically circumcised to eat the Passover today, or do you need to be circumcised of the heart? <coughs> Circumcision of the heart is where it's at. Okay, what about Deuteronomy? Let's go back there to Deuteronomy 23, which, like I said, we may get to tomorrow. If so, pretend you didn't hear this tonight. <laughs> Verse 1 is about the eunuch. Verse 2 is about the mamzer, the one of illegitimate birth, etc. And it says in each of these verses, shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. What does that mean? That means they may not marry into the children of Israel. Starting with verse 30 and on, these prohibitions are against prohibited marriages. Which John MacArthur obviously doesn't understand. If any bad stuff, he's not there. Yeah. So it doesn't have anything to do with who can be grafted in. This was prohibitions against who 
amongst the males of these groups could marry the women in the nation of Israel. But look at the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Ruth, chapter 4. You're in there. Don't tell me you're not. I won't believe you. Ruth is such a neat book. Book of Ruth. Almost there. Joshua judges Ruth. Such a little book. There it is. They didn't take it out. Ruth chapter 4 verse 13. Ruth is a Moabitess. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And down her line a couple generations comes David. And then farther on down, Messiah. So if she's a Moabitess and it says a man from Moab can't marry a woman from Israel. She's a woman marrying a man. The prohibition is against the males intermarrying with the Jewish women. Okay. Let us go on to the next one in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. By the way, did Ruth remain a pagan? No. She did not. That's right. Did she become a follower of the Lord before or after she married into Israel? Before. That's right. One of the neat things about the textbook we use in our Hebrew classes here at the fellowship is you actually read through the book of Ruth in Hebrew before you finish the course. It's integrated in the lessons. 1 Corinthians chapter what? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. It says, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that was following them, and that rock was Messiah. The question is, in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, why does Paul refer to the rock, Greek word 4073 Petra, that was the Messiah, in the feminine? Petra is a feminine word. Petra. What does it mean? It means rock. Rock. Yep. The word for rock in Greek is Petra. It does not mean that the rock is feminine. Biblical Greek, Koine Greek, comes from the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, every single noun is masculine or feminine. Doesn't mean it's describing something that's masculine or feminine. For instance, the word behemoth. Behemoth means animal or cattle. Is every animal feminine? No, but the word behemoth is feminine. Because a noun is feminine or masculine, that determines which types of verbs and which types of adjectives and adverbs can go with and describe it. So the word for rock in Greek is Petra. That does not mean Yeshua is Petra. 
or is feminine. The fact that the noun is feminine does not mean that that which it describes is feminine. Again, it's a matter of syntax and what verbs, adjectives, and adverbs go with it. Petra is the Greek equivalent of the two Hebrew words selah or tzur, either one. When you look at the Septuagint, either word in Hebrew, selah, which is Petra in the book of Isaiah, where the children of Israel are going to flee in the tribulation period, or tzur, which is the rock, like the, the stone which the builders rejected, the rock of our salvation, those kind of words. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel chapter 22. I know there are going to be Bible scholars after listening to this who are going to go out and start turning over rocks and looking to see if they're masculine or feminine. Yeah. That would just be a waste of your time. Okay. Second Samuel chapter 22. Or verse 47. Second Samuel 22 verse 47. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. My rock there is Zur-E. The E on the end means my. T-Z-U-R, rock. That, if you were to look at the Greek translation, would be Petra. Look at Psalm 18, verse 2. Psalm 18, verse 2. How do we know what Hebrew word gets translated to what Greek word? In the Septuagint. The Septuagint was translated from Hebrew to Greek before or after Messiah. Before. before. Almost 200 years before Messiah. Isn't it uh, also in, in languages that do have <coughs> words, nouns that are gendered, um, it's possible to take one, say, in Hebrew that's feminine and in order to put it in Greek it's masculine. It's possible for the for instance, a cow might be feminine in one language, but it might be masculine in a different language. Sure. Just depending on the endings. And it's, it has nothing to do with gender. It right. It has to do with speech. has to do with syntax in the language. That's right. Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock. There my rock is Sali, S-A-L-I, which is the my ending to Selah. Okay, so I hope that answers the question. I don't see any red circles out there. Ah, oh, the next one. We have many names for God as the Father and Yeshua, but the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to have a name. Why would that be? Let's start with Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. This kind of question is normally asked by somebody who's been raised in a Trinitarian faith. That think of God as one person over here, as the Son is a person over here, and the Holy Spirit is a third person over here. 
discussing how things ought to be done. And the father prevailed in the Old Testament. The son prevails in the New Testament. Let's look at Numbers 11.25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied although they never did so again. Let's go now to Judges chapter 3, verse 10. There's several references we need to look at here before we can draw a conclusion. Judges chapter 3, verse 10. So in Numbers 11, it simply said, the Spirit. And Spirit was capitalized, but you realize Biblical Hebrew doesn't have capital letters. So that was simply the translator's choice to capitalize it. If it were me, I would have capitalized it too. But in Judges 3.10, it says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of what? The Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is not a separate person walking around debating the other two around a campfire. This is the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishatayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishatayim. Let's go to Daniel 4.8. Daniel 4.8. Daniel chapter 4, verse 8. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In other words, they changed Daniel's name when he got into captivity to Belteshazzar. Why? What is Bel? Do you know from Belteshazzar? That's Baal. So they gave all the Hebrew children pagan names. In him is the spirit of the holy God. The spirit of the holy God. So again, the Holy Spirit is not a third person. God is a spirit, and he gives of his spirit to Daniel. Go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. What color are the words? Red. But he's quoting from Isaiah. Messiah is quoting from Isaiah. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why is he calling the spirit of the Lord? Because it is the Lord's spirit. God is a spirit. Mm-hmm. 
Acts chapter 5. I was listening to a theologian today on YouTube and she opened her prayer to Jesus praying to Jesus is there any place in the scripture that Yeshua asked us to pray to him nope. what did he always tell us to do pray to Father. the Father in his name. so when someone is praying to Jesus as opposed to to God is it because they think that Jesus is a separate God, the nice new God of the New Testament? Makes me wonder. I hope not. Let's rewind that a little bit. I've never heard that statement before. That you are not supposed to pray. I mean, I don't quite grasp how is she praying. Like, is she saying, dear Jesus, da 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 Yes. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. Not saying, Father God. Nope. Okay. Nope. Praise only to Jesus. Doesn't pray to God. Doesn't like God. He's that mean God from the Old Testament. Okay, on to Acts chapter five. Concerning concerning that, we know that Lord Yeshua is God the Father in the flesh, and if you do pray to Lord Yeshua as being, you know, God in the flesh or the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, uh, not as a separate God or anything like that. There's no such thing uh, as far as creator wise, but. Um, what would is there still an error concerning that? Did I make myself clear, or did that kind of sound garbled? You made yourself perfectly clear. The question is just a little on the periphery, because that's not what she was doing. But if you notice, everywhere when they ask Messiah teaches to pray, or when he prays, he tells them that they will pray straight to the Father, that they don't have to go through an intermediary. He directs everything to God the Father. Never does he okay. say, pray to me. So show me an example. Excellent. Excellent answer. Thank let's, you. Let's get on with this question, though, please. To Acts chapter 5, verse 9. I can't. She said, show me. So let's back up to Matthew. Well, that's kind of confusing for me because, you know, I was raised, you know, dear Jesus. You know, that's what I was taught by my parents and even though we were taught you know, the words of prayer, there was not a distinction. It was some people prayed to Jesus and some people prayed, you know, Heavenly Father. Mm -hmm. So maybe I didn't receive my salvation when I prayed to Jesus and asked him for it. <laughs> it's confusing. I mean, because he, he's my, he is my best friend. I found out he, does, he has a different name, but I think we've got that self dependent on me now. But, but you know what I'm saying? That he he was always he he has always been my friend. Whether you know, and I speak to him as Jesus, or I speak to him as Yeshua, and I figure he'll drink it all out later. But okay. Um. But that's not you're saying that doesn't match up with what Scripture says. That there's nothing there then. Right. There's nothing in Scripture that asks us to pray to Jesus. She was praying to Jesus because, to her, he is not God. He, he is, is a different God. God. 
He's the new, improved God, the nice God of the New Testament, not the mean old God of the Old Testament. Oh, okay. That is the source of the theological error. Yeah. So in Matthew 11, verse 25, when Messiah prays, how does he pray? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. When the disciples ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. Let's go look at the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew. Correct. Yeah, but the question was, show me where he prays to the Father. Oh, I see. Okay. So here's where the disciples say, teach us to pray. Um, so verse 9, in this manner therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And any time you see him instruct people on how to pray, it's always to the Father. Never pray to me. And that's one of the answers I've heard many times from Jewish people who don't want to know Yeshua because they say Christians worship Jesus, but they don't worship God. And that's not what people are trying to do, but it's the way people see it. Okay, let's get back to Acts. If I wouldn't bring up these Ibex trails, we wouldn't have to run them, right? My fault. Acts 5, verse 9. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Romans chapter 1. What we're seeing is that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the Lord. Not a third person. How do the Trinitarians put it? Coexistent, co-equal. With the Father and with the Son. They are coexistent and co-equal. They exist at the same time in three different locations around the fire and are equal in authority and power to each other. Romans chapter 1 verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of Holiness. The Spirit of Holiness. God's Holy Spirit is a Spirit of Holiness. It's a Spirit that should cause us to desire holiness and to walk in holiness. 1 Corinthians 6. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Yeshua and by the 
Spirit of our God. Just two more. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. First Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Yeshua cursed. And no one says that Yeshua is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This verse tells us that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. They're one and the same. And lastly, 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So the Holy Spirit is described as the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of holiness, as the Spirit of God, and as the Spirit of the Lord. Yes, Yeshua is the Spirit. Yeshua is God. What he's trying to say is it's all one and the same. A triunity, not a trinity. That is, God interacts with us in one of three ways. Either as God the Father, or as Yeshua the Son, or as the Holy Spirit. The Catholic Church in the 4th century said, ah, oh, we have three gods. Co-equal, co-existent. That's not what my scripture says. Oh, next one for all you animal lovers. Is there a difference between a human soul and an animal soul? Did you guys know that animals have souls? Yes, they do. If we are told in Genesis that man and animal share the same soul or life, and by that the questioner means the same word nephesh is used. What does nephesh mean? Soul. soul. Mm -hmm. If the soul slash life is the same in man and animal, is that a basis to assume that when animals die, they go to the same places as humans? That is, saved animals go to heaven and unsaved animals go to the lake of fire. That's the essence of the question. And she, uh, the questioner quotes Genesis 2-7. And the Lord God formed a man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Hebrew word 53-15, nephesh. In Genesis 2.19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, Hebrew word 53.15, nephesh, that was its name. And then the final question, are all souls immortal? I know you guys have heard me say before that just before every feast of trumpets, I get flooded with phone calls and emails and texts. If I get taken in the rapture, does my dog get to go too? 
And if my dog can't go, I don't want to go, so tell God to leave me. Well, you know, people get attached to their animals. They really do. They get attached. Um, Isn't it in Proverbs where it says the soul of man goes to the heavens and the soul of animals goes to the earth? I don't know. But if you find it, well, that would be a good one. Spirit and soul is different. Okay? What the Bible does not tell us is what happens to animals when they die. God simply doesn't say. He doesn't say they go to heaven, doesn't say they don't go to heaven. Are there animals in heaven? There's at least white horses. That's yep. about all I can tell you. There must be but, like wolves and sheep and stuff that are, not, that are not eating each other. I mean, a wolf's not eating a sheep somewhere. Yeah, wolves not eating sheep, though, is here on earth in the Messianic oh, kingdom. Sorry. Yeah. So animals have blood, but is it the same blood as humans? Do you want a dog's blood transfused or a cat's? No. Look at Genesis 9 4. The nephesh is in the blood. The nephesh is in the blood. Genesis 9 4. So from that I know that animal blood and human blood is not the same, which means the animal nephesh is not the same as the human nephesh. When the child sticks his hand in the viper hole and he doesn't get hurt, that's on earth in the messianic kingdom. Yep. Not in heaven. The only mention of animals in heaven is when Messiah comes on a white horse. That doesn't mean there aren't animals in heaven. So Genesis chapter 9 verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, its nephesh, that is its blood. So here they translated nephesh's life. The nephesh is in the blood. So the question is, if we have the same nephesh, but the scripture says we do not. Beyond that, I would just be hazarding a guess. What I do tend to tell people right around the Feast of Trumpets is, if the trumpet blows and God doesn't take the dog Leave the dog. Leave the dog. Don't worry. As soon as you're gone, somebody's going to break in your house and they will steal the dog and the dog will be okay. Yep, you leave food and water and there's a doggy door where the dogs can go outside. They're going to be fine. It's when they say, I'm, I'm staying so I can take care of my dog. That I go, hey, be careful what you ask for. Yeah. The next question comes from the book of Exodus. Let's go to book of Exodus chapter 19. There are lots of things we would like to know that are not written in the scripture. Sometimes we just have to wait and see when the time comes. No, it doesn't. It says be no more tears. No more tears, but that's after the millennial kingdom. That's right. That's right. In the new heavens and new earth. Somewhere in the back of my mind, and I'll have to search for it, but I found something year, years ago in the book of Leviticus where it talked about the, what happened to the human spirit and the animal. 
and the animal would go up, according to what I remember reading, and return into another shape, form, or whatever, another animal. But we, as a living being, had a purpose, and ours was in heaven. But I'll have to go back and research that one. Good. But Let I me know when you find it. Those, I think what Bill was, I think I found some of what, maybe what Bill was referring to. It's actually in Ecclesiastes. Okay, yeah. So let's go to Ecclesiastes. Yeah. 320 and 21. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, which was written by Solomon, so it's near Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 20. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth. There you go. But again, soul and spirit is not the same thing. Sure. But it's an indication which one might argue that Fido's going to be okay. Don't worry, he'll get stolen. That's why we don't dust because we might be dust in situations. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Sue. What about Genesis 9-5? I don't know that animals go to heaven, but they will be judged for shedding blood. You Genesis 9-5? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Genesis 9-5 is not the only case. We're going to study in Deuteronomy tomorrow that if your ox gores somebody such that they die, the animal gets put to death. Yeah. So Genesis 9.5 says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I'll require it, and from the hand of man. So an animal that kills a person is in deep trouble with God. Okay. Right. So if Sasquatch comes up at me, I can tell him, well, look out now. You can. <laughs> That's right. In the Torah, it demands the death of an animal that kills a human being. So in Exodus 19... Verse 24. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So the question is, why does God refer to himself in the third person? Or he will break out against them. Well, the first thing you have to know is that word he could have been, tra been translated as he or it, referring to the plague that would come upon them. But in either case, that's what God is trying to say, is that if they come up upon the mountain, there is a plague that is going to break forth. So whether you translate it as he, capitalized, or it, it refers to the plague that's going to break out. Or it could refer as an antecedent to Lord. Um, so it, it could be a grammatical thing. That whoever translated this particular verse may have made he the made the Lord the antecedent to he. So it would it wouldn't be the Lord then the Lord towards it would be the Lord he. Yeah, the Lord yeah. he has done mighty things. Yeah, not, not the Lord. Lord done mighty things. Yeah, so it can refer to either. 
But the gist of it is that if they come up upon the mountains, God is going to release a plague upon them. Whether you translate it here, it doesn't really make any difference. That's that to which God refers. And the last one on this page is from Genesis. And it comes down essentially to another, let's look at the Hebrew. It's about Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Problem is, the word cool, that's not the way it probably should have been translated, but they were trying to get across the point. So is she, the questioner says, the word translated as, quote, cool, unquote, is actually ruach, which is Hebrew word 7307, which is spirit, right? Why does virtually every translation say cool when this is a very different and specific word, spirit? The answer to the question is the word ruach does mean spirit, but that's not the only thing it means. It means wind, breath, or spirit. And here it's talking about the wind in the afternoon blowing. And there's a cool breeze. That's exactly right. What does that breeze do on a hot day? It cools. So instead of saying, um, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the wind of the day, they said the purpose of the wind is to make it cool, so in the cool of the day. And of course the winds back then would blow in the evening as opposed to in the heat of the day. Okay. So I guess they did not like the sound of the wind of the day. People would make all kinds of jokes about that. <laughs> but since the wind does cool things down, I think they just used it because it sounds better. Next page. Hebrew, Hebrew would say in the cool of the day. Yeah. I mean, because, again, it's expressing the thought. Right, it's expressing the thought. What does our Hebrew book say? A literal translation of Hebrew is not always the best translation. Yeah. doesn't always get across the thought. It's the same with every language. If you do literal, you'll totally miss what it's saying. Yeah, exactly. Next question, number one. Why do some parts of the Bible show genealogy through the fathers and some through the mothers? For example, David, the son of Jesse, versus 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Good question. Normally, all Hebrew genealogies are through the father. There are some exceptions. 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 26. It's at the time of David. And there's some conspiracies going on, right? Actually, we're at the time of Joash. We're past David. So the son of David, David the son of Jesse, that was the early period. This is Joash, which is a couple hundred years later. 
Let me get the time straight. Verse 26. These are the ones who conspired against him. Zabad, the son of Shemith, the Ammonitus, and Jehozabad, the son of Shimrit, the Moabitus. So these are the conspirators, Zabad and Jehozabad. Why do they mention the mother instead of the father? Why are you about Ammonites and Moabites? They're enemies. They're pagans. They're foreigners. So the reason they're conspiring against him is because of the pagan influences of their mothers. So that's one reason why the Bible will sometimes show a, a genealogy through a mother. Did, um, did those pagan religions have female, cl not clerics, but, yes. but females in positions that in Israel only males could occupy? Yes, high priestesses. That could also be that these women represented those gods. Perhaps. Another place where you see a genealogy through a woman is in the book of Luke. Messiah's genealogy in Matthew 1 is through the father. In Luke, it's through the mother. Although Luke doesn't tell us that because that would be offensive to some Jewish people. So let's go to Luke chapter 3. Where it traces upwards, starting in verse 23. Now, Yeshua himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Haley. Haley is not Joseph's father, it's his father in law, it's Mary's father. Why do they show the genealogy of Mary in Luke? Well, in Matthew, it's the genealogy through David's son, Solomon, which goes down to Jeconiah, where the scripture says no descendant, no physical descendant of Jeconiah can ever sit on the throne in Israel again. So that's Joseph's lineage. Joseph should have been king in Israel, but for that prohibition by God. So if Yeshua was Joseph's literal physical son, he could not be the Messiah. He couldn't be the king of Israel. But yet he's got to be the physical descendant of David to be the son of David. To be the king of Israel. But Mary descends from King David also, but through Nathan instead of through Solomon. Nathan's line does not pass through Jeconiah. So he receives the right to rule from Joseph when he's adopted and does not have the prohibition of Jeconiah that a physical son can't sit on the throne. So that's the second reason why a genealogy might be shown through a woman. Second one. Has the name of God that was spoken in a whisper in the Holy of Holies by the high priests, that was once a year in Yom Kippur, been lost. Do the priests still know? Honestly, I don't know. They've certainly never told me what that name is spoken as. 
But since they're about to rebuild the temple and begin this temple sacrifices and services again, including Yom Kippur, I would assume that somebody in the high priesthood's position knows how to pronounce the name. When will we know for sure? When the temple's rebuilt and it comes time for the Day of Atonement. But they won't speak of it. Will the high priest go into the Holy of Holies yeah. and speak the name in a whisper yeah. or not? Sure. You have to have a microphone to figure that out. Yeah, I'm not putting a microphone in there. Uh-uh. I'll just ask the high priest, did you? The Yom Kippur sacrifice, yes, it's the only time the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies. No, I'm talking about the whispering part. The whispering part, is that in scripture? No, it is not. So that is, is that just a That's, that is commentary. That is Talmud. Could they be lying to us? Yeah, probably not. Third question. So that one, I I honestly don't know if they still know or not. I hope so. But when Messiah comes, you're right. Then we'll know absolutely for sure. Oh, we've run out of time. We will pick up next week with the start of Daniel.